So today we're pleased to be joined by Elizabeth. Wait, before we start, I just want you to. <laughs> yes, you have bookcases now. I got a third bookshelf. I got a third bookshelf in my office. I'm the only one who has three bookshelves. They are admirably not completely stuffed with books like mine are in my office. I'm at home, so you can't see them, but. Yeah. Tyler's not like a reader. <laughs> I'm a collector of books. I don't read them. Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society. Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting. I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script? So Tyler, this must be an interesting time to be somebody who both has a law degree and is thinking about the law and a clinical ethicist working in a hospital and a medical school. Do you think that your law degree in any way helps you do your job better? I mean, it certainly gives you some street cred, but is it is it actually helpful in your work? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> sometimes it's helpful. You know, sometimes I jokingly tell people that I, I did the, the PhD, so, so doctors and people in the hospital have to call me doctor but I did the law degree. So they actually do what I recommend them doing. <laughs> but I don't know that that's always the case. I think being a lawyer is interesting, or at least, so I don't consider myself a lawyer because I don't have a license. I don't practice law. It's never been something that's been necessary for my the jobs that I've had, but I do have a law degree. So I went to law school, but being a lawyer is probably similar to being a, a, a physician in that once you have that credential, people think that you are the expert on anything and everything that's related to the law, just like physicians are viewed as having an answer to every single malady that could befall their their aunt, even if it's way outside of their specialization. They get asked to look at rashes and all other <laughs> kinds of things that people people find on themselves. So being a lawyer is, is kind of that way, or, or having a law degree is kind of that way where people bring up like immigration issues, or they'll talk about... Um, um, you know, insurance, or they'll talk about some sort of like criminal, like traffic citation, assuming that just because I, I went to law school that I know about all of those different areas of law, which isn't the case. I pretend like it is, but it is. <laughs> well, but what you really need to know is actually what your school specialized in, right? So health law, I think comes up all the time in clinical care maybe all the time is an exaggeration, but you do have to understand the laws that apply to healthcare in your state in order to do a lot of the functions of a clinical ethicist. So, and, and your degree from St. Louis University, they specialized in health law, right? Like I, I think they're the number one health law program in the country. So was that a helpful way to sort of entree into clinical ethics? Yeah, I think it's really a useful background. Even if you don't have a law degree, like you said, you have to understand at least a couple of laws that change state by state. So each state has its own approach to deciding who should make decisions for a patient who's unable to make their own decisions, whether it's a, you know, a spouse or a, a, an adult child and kind of what order that happens. So surrogate decision makers are an issue. Also how the law treats involuntary commitment or involuntary treatment. Those are all issues as well that I think to be a competent clinical ethicist, you have to be able to you have to understand those things and how they apply day to day, especially when, when there's conflict about it. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's really useful. 
and being, like I said, being a, a competent clinical ethicist kind of requires that of, of the people. Yeah, I mean, when I moved to Texas, it was like this whole new set of laws that I had to learn because they're, some of them are very different than the laws that I understood in Michigan. We have a futility law, they don't call it that, but that's basically what it is. There's all sorts of laws about like who has to sign certain documents in order for your wishes to be carried out. So it's incredibly helpful to understand what the relevant laws are you learn them along the way but if you can have like a primer and i'm always telling my students for all sorts of issues it totally depends on the state that you live in which makes the law very confusing which i suppose is why you take the bar in a state so you're only licensed um, in that particular state to practice law isn't that right yeah absolutely the, the law is very widely so i did my my postdoc training it in california and the California laws and the Michigan laws are different in some interesting and important ways. And like you said, in Texas, it's different as well. So some states are kind of run of the mill and they're they're kind of predictable um, about what the, the statutes say or how it approaches certain issues. But there are certain states that are definitely outliers. So I think Texas is probably one of them. That, that's what I'm learning. Everything's bigger and more confusing in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, but we're so we're going to have today um, Elizabeth Pendo, who teaches at St. Louis University's health law program. And she's been doing a lot of work on how the law intersects with various issues with COVID. So this is something, you know, it, it's about employers and employees, and it's about protection under the ADA and certain civil rights protections. You know, this is something that's a little bit out of the realm of the things I deal with in a clinical side. I'm excited to talk to Professor Pendo because she is one of the preeminent thought leaders on kind of the intersection of not only health law and disability, but also employment law, bioethics. And so I think it's going to be a great conversation. We're lucky to get smart people on various topics. And that's what you get with Bioethics for the People. We're pleased to be joined today by Elizabeth Pendo. Elizabeth is the Joseph J. Simeon Professor of Law, a member of the Center for Health Law Studies, and a member of the Employment Law Center at St. Louis University School of Law. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you. Um, so a real lawyer. So sometimes Tyler <laughs> um, claims to be at least um, somebody who has graduated with a law degree but more or less is not teaching in a law center or practicing law, or really, honestly, when we have conversations, I'm not sure he knows much about the law at all. So we're happy to have you here as our expert. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that that would be offensive if somebody in my family hadn't referred to me once as a doctor, but not the kind that helps anybody, but also a lawyer, but not one that can help anybody either. <laughs> so Elizabeth, we've been thinking about all sorts of things with the law and how it relates to COVID, but especially with these new vaccine requirements. Sure. So what, if anything, does the law have to say about vaccine requirements in general, or what is going on right now with the COVID-19 vaccine? Sure. Well, let's talk about employers uh, for a minute, because vaccine mandates can come from a lot of different places. Historically, they've come from the states, and you can think of um, a requirement of certain vaccines for children to attend public schools. Uh, they can also come from the federal government. The Biden administration issued an executive order for federal employers regarding the mandate. But a really big role in this mandate, in mandate discussion has come from employers. 
And federal law permits employers to require vaccinations under certain circumstances. If you're an employer and you want to have a mandatory vaccine program, it has to meet the standards of other federal laws. And namely, those are the Americans with Disabilities Act and also Title VII, uh, a civil rights act that protects against discrimination based on religion in the workplace. So if you want to have a vaccine requirement, it has to be job related. It has to be uh, necessary. Employers can ask employees about their vaccine status or require proof of vaccination. Just has to have certain mandatory exemptions. There has to be an exemption for people who decline vaccination for medical reasons based on a disability or perhaps pregnancy and also an exception for people who decline vaccines based on religious reasons. I wanna get into both of those exemptions in just a second, because I think they're really interesting and there's been some fights about what counts, but something you said was just now was really interesting to me that employers are allowed to ask. And I hear all the time from people that, oh, you're not allowed to ask me about my vaccination status. And in fact, in my own job, I've heard some people say this, oh, well, we're not allowed to ask them. But that seems like it must not be true. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion there. I think people are uh, confusing perhaps or misunderstanding the federal medical privacy law, HIPAA. It's a law that prevents disclosure of your personal health information to others without your permission. And protected health information is medical information that identifies you, that could be by your name or your address, your date of birth. It's information about a medical condition, like a diagnosis, or about a treatment, or even about payment, insurance reimbursement for a specific treatment. Vaccination status is not protected health information under HIPAA. It doesn't reveal anything about a medical con- underlying medical condition. Um, HIPAA also only applies in the healthcare industry, right? To healthcare actors and people uh, who they do business with. It doesn't generally apply to the public or store owners or schools or your employer. Employers have different duties that come from different places to keep employee information confidential, just like universities have obligations to keep student information confidential. Uh, But vaccination status isn't protected in and of itself because it isn't medical information. So when we hear people say that you you can't ask anybody because of HIPAA, that's just a a misunderstanding of what HIPAA is, right? So I've heard, I saw an interview once uh, recently with an NBA player who was asked about his particular vaccine status, and he tried to invoke HIPAA. Is that just a misunderstanding of of the application or the relevance of HIPAA? That's right. That's just incorrect. It's a misunderstanding about HIPAA. And we could have a whole other podcast about how misunderstood HIPAA is, (laughs) federal medical privacy is. Um, But yeah, there's no protection for that status. And that's because your vaccination status actually doesn't reveal anything, any underlying medical condition. If you asked someone, you know, why haven't you been vaccinated? Is it because of an underlying medical condition? Do you have a disability that relates to vaccination status? Then we'd be getting into more protected health information. But again, it's healthcare actors who are governed by HIPAA. It's your doctor's office or a hospital or a pharmacy or someone they do business with who can't reveal that information without your permission. And, and this not, might not be the law, But as I sit here with a big pregnant belly, you're also not allowed to ask a woman if she's pregnant. I think that's just that's right. That's just good ethical sense. (laughs) 
Right, there are other confidentiality protections for disability status, for pregnancy um, that apply, but they don't prohibit an employer from asking you about your vaccination status or even asking for verification of your vaccination status. Are there rules that health or that employers have to follow once they have that information? So if, if they know the vaccine um, status of their employers, do they have an obligation to keep that confidential or that private? Yeah, there are other laws uh, that relate to privacy and confidentiality of employer information, which includes, but certainly isn't limited to your vaccination status and universities, for example, there's another federal law that protects student information, for example. <clears throat> and that's why you see some employers will say, for example, my university, like many universities, has a dashboard that gives some information about COVID precautions and infection in the, in the university community, but it just reports a general vaccination rate, not each individual employee or student's vaccination status. So it's de-identified information that's important for the community to know, but doesn't reveal anything about any individual. Well, Elizabeth, what if the dashboard said 100% of your faculty and students are vaccinated? That kind of would reveal about individuals, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> yes, it would. That would be a great problem to have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about these exemptions, because um, I think that this is also maybe more complicated than folks have been talking about in the media. So I heard you say, and let's take them both in turn. So first are medical exemptions. And this is mm -hmm. this seems to be fairly uncontroversial, except that when I'm at my hospital talking about what counts as a medical exemption, they're actually, it's not necessarily as easy as you might think. So one thing I've heard is that this obviously applies to people who got one vaccine and had a really bad reaction. So if you took the first vaccine, you had a really adverse reaction, th that might be grounds for saying you don't have to take the second maybe you would be exempt from taking the second shot if you're getting a two dose regimen and then some it sounds like some hospitals or some employers are saying that pregnancy might count i think this is an unusual one because actually it seems like getting the shot during getting the vaccine during pregnancy might actually be beneficial to your unborn child and it doesn't seem to be having any adverse effects on the pregnant woman herself so that might it's an unusual one, but it seems like that might be counting as well. But what else is there and why are those why are those the two? Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting question because the law is actually well settled in this area, but the science and our medical knowledge is not well settled in this area, right? COVID is still quite new. It's novel. We're learning different things about it all the time and the vaccines as well. So the law has to take into account this evolving medical and scientific knowledge about the condition. Uh, I think the medical exemptions are primarily coming from a civil rights law, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. And that law protects anyone who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity. That seems like a complicated three-part uh, definition, but it's really meant to broadly include as many people as possible. So if you have any sort of impairment that affects your body system or any sort of important activity to you, you can be protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that means an employer requirement of vaccine has to allow for an exemption for those disability related reasons. We often call it shorthanded as medical related reasons, but they're really related to disability 
that definition is so broad, it encompasses a lot of the circumstances you're talking about. Protection for pregnancy actually comes from a different law, but there can be overlap between them. So you'd basically be saying, I have some sort of condition, some set of symptoms, some impairment of some kind that affects me, and it's a contraindication to receiving the vaccine. It's a very small percentage of people, but it's also very real and has to be considered. So if you wanted an exemption, exemption on that basis, you would ask your employer for that exemption. You, they might ask you to document it. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, but they can ask you for some reasonable amount of documentation and an exemption would have to be provided. We'd also have to think about how do we accommodate that? Because it may not be safe for other workers or if you're in a healthcare environment for patients to have an, someone who is unvaccinated in close contact with them. So you'd have to think about other kinds of measures. Under the circumstances, would wearing a mask be enough? Is it possible to work from home? Could we change the work schedule? Could we ask for weekly testing? So we might have to explore other ways to to ensure safety in the workplace if someone actually has uh, a disability-based exemption. So is it the case that somebody could have a, a, a legitimate medical condition or a, a, a disability that would qualify for an exemption and it would be impossible for an employer after a good faith effort to be able to accommodate that it, it, to, to the result that they would actually lose their job or have to move into a different role? It's possible. Right. Employers are required to provide reasonable accommodations um, to workers based on disability, but the, there are limits to that. They do not have to provide accommodations that are an undue burden, and that generally means you know, really difficult or really expensive. They also don't have to provide accommodations that would pose a direct threat in the workplace. And that direct threat, it's actually quite um, uncommon that a condition would cause a direct threat, but we're seeing an example of that with COVID-19. The agency that enforces this part of the ADA, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has actually said that the risk of transmission of COVID is a direct threat. So it is possible in a very specific job that all these other measures I talked about, wearing masks, weekly testing, physical distancing, work at home, it's possible that none of those would reduce the direct threat, but it would be very rare and employers are required to explore all of those before separating an employee from the workplace. That seems fair. And I think it's something that I think a lot of people, even if you aren't working in the disability area or representing disability uh, disabled clients or are in an HR department, it, that seems fair to require people to employers to accommodate folks who have different degrees of uh, ability. Right. And employers, of course, accommodate employees all the time on lots of different bases. For example, when I go into my office at work, um, there's a chair there and a desk. That chair is accommodating the fact that it might be uncomfortable for me to stand for eight hours at my desk. We don't think of that as an accommodation because it's so universal, but it really is. There's lots of ways that the needs of employees are accommodated in the workplace. This is just another one. And the ADA was basically making a statement that people with disabilities have been excluded from the workforce when in fact they're willing and able to work. And we have to change some of those decisions that we've made, decisions about structure and physical environment or policies and practices. 
to make sure that people with disabilities have a fair opportunity to engage in work. But of course, it's not limitless, right? If it's too expensive or too difficult or poses a real safety risk, then employers aren't required to do that. Elizabeth, have you heard of any cases where this has come up in the law? I'm thinking most people I know with disabilities were really excited to get the vaccine, were actually some of the first who were able to get the vaccine. And I have heard of cases in which people are immunocompromised and the vaccine just isn't working for them. So for whatever reason, their autoimmune disorders are preventing their bodies from developing antibodies the way that they ought to. Mm -hmm. But I can't think of any off the top of my head, and maybe I'm just behind on the science, disabilities are impairments that would actually make the getting the vaccine itself quite dangerous for an individual. It's possible that you could have an underlying condition that makes you react um, to the vaccine in an unexpected way. Um, but you're right, it would be a rare kind of impairment that would actually prevent you from getting the vaccine. And of course, the irony here is that people with disabilities have really been disproportionately impacted by COVID the COVID-19 pandemic. They're at greater risk because of certain underlying health conditions and also uh, disparities in social determinants of health um, in terms of poverty and housing and access to medical care. And then of course, there's all sorts of issues about how people with disabilities were treated under crisis standards of care and concerns about access to care if in fact they did develop COVID in terms of testing and treatment. So most people with disabilities are actually, you know, eager to get vaccinated and be protected because as you point out, lots of immunosuppressing conditions actually make the vaccine less effective. So they're more interested in these sorts of safety measures. But we have to account for the fact that there could be some people for whom the vaccine is contraindicated because of some underlying medical condition. So the fight has really been access to testing, care, and vaccine for people with disabilities. But there is this other, you know, other element of, in some cases, the vaccine may be contraindicated. I think despite how complicated that sounds, um, the, the medical exemption, disability accommodation issue, it's actually the easier of the two common exemptions to deal with, I think, for employers. Yes. And the second one, the second one being the religious exemption. So can you walk us through what a, a kind of a traditional or a classic exemption for religious reasons might, might look like? Yes, these exemption requests are really testing the boundaries of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's often called Title VII because that's the section of the law that provides protection in employment based on race, color, national origin, sex, and religion, um, not disability. That's handled by another law that we just talked about. But Title VII requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations for employees who um, object to a work requirement, and that could be a vaccine requirement, based on religious beliefs that are sincerely held. Right? And sincerely held is an important part of that test. Um, what's interesting here is that many, if not most, major religious traditions, denominations, institutions, are fairly unanimous in their support of the vaccine um, against COVID-19. But the law defines religion very broadly, right? So the EEOC has said that religious-based objections don't have to be recognized by an organized religion. 
It could be based on a new religion. And it actually doesn't matter if other people don't agree with the religious exemption, right? The question really is, is it sincerely held? I think what is important though, is it cannot be based only on social or political beliefs. It has to be based on religious beliefs. And that puts employers in a very difficult position of trying to distinguish between objections that are really primarily political objections to the vaccine, who, especially when they come from people who also happen to be religious, versus objections that are really based on religious beliefs at their core. So it's a very challenging area right now. That does sound hard. And Elizabeth, who gets to make these decisions? I I heard at my hospital, the chaplain is the person who reviews the religious exemptions, and he or she is then responsible for evaluating how sincerely held they are. I suppose that's one way, you know, they're a, a spiritual or religious authority for the organization. But typically, who is in charge of deciding who one of their employees has a (laughs) sincerely held religious belief or not? Yeah, well, like all of these um, exemptions, actually, it's handled by the employer. And they might refer that to, you know, an HR department or somebody in the HR department. I think having someone with religious training... Um, such as a chaplain, is actually a very interesting solution because it may provide comfort to individuals that their objections and the basis of their objections will be taken seriously and will be considered by a person of faith, even if it's not their faith. So I think that's a creative solution to try to reduce what might be tension or concerns between the employer and the employee. But ultimately, it's the employer who gets to decide. And they could uh, decide that in a number of ways or delegate it to someone um, who can decide it in a number of ways. So are employers put in the position where they have to decide what is a religious belief or not? Or is it, do they just have to decide if it's a sincerely held belief or not? It does have to be based on religion. So they can ask, you know, what is the basis of your objection? Right. And the answer would have to be like my religious beliefs, which they might explain. It can't be, you know, I object to the way this is being, you know, decided. And I think the vaccine might be experimental. Right. Those are other kinds of considerations, um, but they are not fundamentally religious based. So they can probe a little bit to make sure that it is based on religion. But again, religion is really defined quite broadly. It doesn't have to be an organized religion. It doesn't matter if other people don't agree. Right. So the first part is, is it religious? And the second part is, is it sincerely held? And you can imagine how challenging it is to determine whether or not a religious belief is sincerely held, especially since it may be coming from someone who raised a number of objections, non-religious objections to the vaccine, and then ultimately raised a religious objection. That's really challenging for an employer to determine, you know, what, what's actually the motivation of an individual in raising this claim. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to assess this. Well, I can't imagine because I accidentally got put on the committee <laughs> at our yeah. institution that has to decide it. And it's it's so hard because sincerity doesn't necessarily mean that you've held this position for a long time, right? So it's not right. the longevity of the belief. So it could be a belief that you've come to very quickly or, or in a short amount of time you know, we take into consideration, you know, conversions to different religions. And and so it could be a a short time window, but it could be very sincere. And one thing that we're struggling with is whether 
uh, consistency is an indicator of sincerity. And so we, you know, we ask, or, you know, the institution asks if there are other vaccines or other medications that are also objectionable under, under the same religious claim. Is, is that a good way of approaching that? Yeah, that's one. I think that is a line of questions that employers can definitely pursue. Because, you know, if the individual is objecting to, say, all vaccines based on a religious belief, it's a legitimate question to say, have you received any other vaccines, right? Do you get the flu vaccine? Some of the childhood vaccines may be a little bit less relevant because it may not have been your decision. It may have been the decision um, of your parents or guardians. But I think it's legitimate to, to ask questions to determine whether or not it's sincere. Now, there might be very good answers to that. It might be, yes, I got the flu shot last year, but I learned something new, or the COVID vaccine is different in some way. It's not that there aren't answers to those questions, but those are legitimate questions to ask. But it's very challenging to determine whether or not something is sincerely held. You know, it, it sort of reminds me, Elizabeth, of, of the things we do as ethicists um, when we're working with patients and their families. We do often ask for an explanation, especially when we're talking to surrogates of patients and they're telling us, well, my, my father would or would not want this medication. And we might ask, well, what makes you think that? And tell me a story about his life that mm -hmm. would explain that to me. So in some ways, ethicists are actually kind of used to sussing out, you know, if a surrogate is responsibly representing a patient, and, and there might be an analogy here mm -hmm. um, to sussing out if this belief itself is sincerely held, is it religious? You know, maybe it's not a strong enough analogy for us clinical ethicists to feel like we're doing a good job at this, but it's it's not as if we're not used to kind of pressing people to explain their reasons. I think that's a great point. And the law actually supports that idea of dialogue. Certainly for reasonable accommodation, the law is very clear that it's meant to be an interactive process. It's meant to be flexible. It's meant to be a discussion. So it's the idea of bringing the employer and the employee into a conversation to explore options and see what will work. You know, and as part of that conversation, you can certainly ask, like, well, tell me about how, you know, the impairment affects your ability of work, right? And would this accommodation solve the problem? Oh, and if it wouldn't, like, what would? What about this? So it is, it is meant to be this interactive conversation where we learn a little bit more each side actually learns a little bit more about the thinking and the reasoning and the motivations of the other party. So it makes sense that the law would structure this as that sort of interactive conversation. That's a really interesting, um, I think, ideal that, that, that the law at least contemplates. My experience so far is that these seem really adversarial interactions between the employee and the employer, which I think is unfortunate. Um, so if, if I'm an employee and my institution, my hospital or my university has a mandatory vaccine mandate and I apply for a religious exemption and I provide what I think is a legitimate reason for that. Re and you, like you said, regardless of whether my, my the leader of my faith agrees with it or anybody else agrees with it, it's my deeply held, sincere religious belief mm -hmm. and the employer doesn't buy it and they say, sorry, because of your inconsistency or whatever other reason, we don't find it to be sincere and your exemption is denied. Um, what recourse as an employee would I have at that point? Yeah, incredibly challenging situation. I'm not sure this area is, is 
is as adversarial as it might appear, because of course we don't hear stories of all the exemptions that are granted and where things work out, right? We really only hear of the conflict, but I think your intuition that there are more conflicts now, is probably correct because of the attention and the politicization um, of COVID and COVID vaccines overall. So if your request for an exemption is denied, you can uh, file a grievance with the federal agency and ask them to investigate it. Well, you could pursue any internal remedies you might have through your employer. You could uh, contact the EEOC uh, to try to pursue a claim under Title VII or the ADA, depending on which law is protecting you. And they might investigate, they might ask your employer some questions. It might become relevant, you know, what was the process? Did they offer you an opportunity to explain? Um, is the employer consistent in applying its standards? They might look at some of those. Ultimately, once you've exhausted those remedies, you could file an action in court. It's really, you know, a last resort because it's it often, you know, ruptures the employee-employer relationship. But ultimately, you do have the right to pursue this claim administratively or in court. So Elizabeth, before we let you go, I, I want to ask you about another area of research that you've been doing on long haul COVID. Sure. So I've met a few people who are still can't smell and taste quite like they used to, people who still feel like they have some brain fog, who, you know, maybe they got COVID during the very first wave in March or April and are still dealing with it. So what do we know about long haul COVID and, and what repercussions might this have for disability claims moving forward? Yeah, um, obviously it's a very serious situation and what we know about it, you know, our knowledge of it is evolving, obviously. So that's gonna shape the legal response to it. But we do know as of now, three different federal agencies have recognized that long COVID can be a disability under the ADA. If mental or physical symptoms like brain fog, like fatigue, like difficulty breathing or others make it harder to perform, you know, life activities. And that could be concentrating or standing for periods of time or breathing, right? There's really a, a wide variety here to accommodate the range of symptoms. And because people with long COVID experience such a wide range of symptoms and also at different levels of severity, maybe even fluctuating levels of severity, an employer really needs to consider that employee's individual specific situation to determine how the ADA applies and how, if and how they can accommodate um, their worker. Are there any other things we should be thinking about when we think about how the law and COVID-19 are intersecting at this moment? <laughs> They're intersecting in so many ways. I think uh, the vaccine requirements at uh, I think the, it, the legal issues there are fairly settled, even if the social and political issues are not. I think questions about long haul COVID and how it can be diagnosed and documented and also how it can be accommodated in the workplace are really important questions. History shows us that when we have conditions that disproportionately affect women or people of color as long haul COVID may, especially when there's no definitive diagnostic test. Instead, it's a collection of symptoms. Um, experience in history tells us that those kind of conditions are often met with dismissiveness or suspicion, or they're characterized as psychological rather than physical conditions. 
That was certainly the case with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is actually strikingly similar to what we know about um, long haul COVID. So I think that's a concern, right? Being dismissed or st stigmatized is a real concern. But even if you get past that barrier and everyone accepts that you have long haul COVID, there's a real question about if and how it can be accommodated in the workplace. And we'll have to work through all of those questions together as we learn more. Well, it sounds like we'll need to have you back in a year or so when we, <laughs> when we know more. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming and sharing all of your wisdom about the law and how it applies to our current situation. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about this episode, show notes, and links to the articles and topics we've discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstahl for all the podcast-related artwork, and Christopher Wright for composing and recording the music. Mm -hmm.